All right, we're going to be in Genesis 14 after we do a little bit of review. We're going to talk about Melchizedek. You've heard of Melchizedek? Interesting twist that the New Testament puts on on this idea of this story that happens in Genesis 14. So uh, let's see what we got here. So just a little bit of review. So God has started a whole new family with Abram, right? Abram, Sarah, I may say Abraham from time to time, but that's the same person. He started a whole new nation. The other nations have been judged, handed over. That's what Babel was all about, the scattering and the the confusion of the languages. They've been uh, handed over to worship other gods, to do what they want to do. That's what they do, actually. And uh, they want to make a name for themselves. So God said, okay, y'all go your way. Do your thing. So it's almost like God divorces the nations and he starts over again with Abraham. So God chooses or he elects Abram and his descendants to help, help God rescue the human race. That's what Abraham's task is going to be. Abraham is the chosen. He's going to start the, the nation that's known as the chosen people, right? That's what we call it. Um, the church is also given that same title, the chosen. Um, so Abraham is chosen by God. And, he, and Abraham, he agrees with God on all this. He, he believes God. He, he hears what God calls him to do. And he says, okay, I'll do it. I'll follow you. So Abraham does that. that, that he becomes the friend of God. You'll see that phrase pop up a little bit later. He's the friend of God. So he, he's uh, going through a difficult season. We got chapter 13 and 14. It's difficult. You know, and when you start to serve God and walk the right path, things aren't always easy, are they? In fact, it can sometimes go the opposite direction because now you've entered into a warfare uh, that is for real. So there's a famine in the land. Remember that? We talked about that at the, at the end of chapter 12. In fact, it didn't just say a famine. It said that there was a severe famine in the land. And Abraham goes down to Egypt. Remember that? He goes down to Egypt. Then by the time we get to chapter 13, it says he went up from Egypt. Notice the, the, the play on words, how the Holy Spirit had it structured goes down to Egypt, and the best thing to do when you go down to Egypt is to get yourself out of there. Come back up, all right? And then, remember, he goes back to the altar. He goes back to the place where he had met God and worshiped God and made his commitment there. And he goes back to that altar there in Bethel. So from there, we get into chapter 13. There's trouble between him and Lot. Now, who is Lot? Who's Lot again? It's his nephew. Abraham's brother had passed away, right? And, of course, Abraham's father had passed away, too. And Abram now has got his nephew in tow, pretty much. And Abraham honors Lot with the first choice of the land, remember? He said, there's fighting in between us and, and the, the, with not enough grass for all the, the herds and all that kind of thing. So we don't want to fight. We're brothers. We're family. So you choose the best. You choose what you see fit. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left, remember? Abraham honors him with the first choice. And what does Lot choose? He just goes, man, yeah, I've been wanting to go right over there. He chooses the best what he saw, right? But what was the problem? What, the best of what he saw was really not the best, was it? Wasn't the best. So he, he chose and he goes towards the land of Sodom. You, you just said it. He goes towards the land of Sodom. So now com- compare the wording here. I don't, I don't think we, we highlighted this when we come through chapter 13, but compare the wording. Remember, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere like the garden of God. There's a little phrase in there that says this was before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So he lifted up his eyes. Remember, we, we made the analogy that that was kind of the idea of, of Eve 
when she was there at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and she saw that it was good, that kind of idea. He's putting this in. And then it says, then Lot chose for himself. So this is Lot. He lifted up his eyes and he saw and he chose for himself. Now the comparison is, look what happens in that with Abraham just a few verses later. After Lot makes his choice, the Lord then comes to Abraham and the Lord said to Abraham, lift your eyes now and look and I will make your descendants. Do you see the difference right there when I, when I put them side by side? Lot lifted up his eyes and did his thing for himself. Abraham was of the sort. He was of a, a man of faith and he allowed God to lift up. God told him to lift up his eyes. There's a big difference in that in you choosing to go a certain direction and God saying, all right, I want you to go this way. It's a big difference in that now. Okay. And then Abraham chose for himself and God said, now I'm going to make you. And I tell you what, a God made man is a lot better than a self-made man. It always works out better that way. Let God make you. I will make your descendants. Now we got some warnings that's popped up in the story. Some warnings. Genesis 13, 13. That's a good way to remember it. 13, 13. That's not good, right? Lot goes towards Sodom and the, the narrator pops in. He said, wait a minute, Sodom. The men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So what happens most often? Now, there's such thing as missionaries and ministers that go into really bad, difficult places. But most often when people who are not of the missionary mindset, but people who just go, when people go towards some place like Sodom where it's exceedingly wicked, what usually happens to the good people? They compromise, don't they? Something usually happens. Now, it doesn't have to be that way, but some, that's kind of what the narrator is saying. All right, Lot, watch your step. This place is wicked, right? And the other warning kind of showed up in chapter 12. As you keep reading the story, you go back and you see it as a warning. You didn't see it at first when you come through, but when you go back and read the Bible again and you see this, it says, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Now, the, the departure, departure was to be leave your father's house, leave your kin, and leave your country, basically, right? Now, look at this little phrase right here. It says, and Lot went with him. It's a little bit of a warning because Lot's going to be a lot of trouble, isn't he? He's going to be a thorn in his side again today. And actually, Lot's going to end up losing everything. By the, time, by the time you get to chapter 19, it's not good for Lot. It's awful. So he loses his wife, his kids. There's an ancestral thing that happens. It's awful. It's just awful. It's awful. All right, so now, chapter 14. This is new stuff. Where we're at. Let me, let me just kind of set up the story here, and we'll look at a little map. In verses 1 through 11, there's this war that breaks out. Okay? Remember, they're in the land of Canaan. There's all these different tribes and all these ites, so to speak. We call them ites. All these tribal groups. Canaanites are, are one of them. And there's a war that breaks out. Now, just if you've read chapter 14, you'll see the first few verses. Reading through all that, you really got to kind of pay attention because there's a bunch of names you can't pronounce. And there's a bunch of names I can't pronounce. And there's a bunch of stuff going on that you don't know what's happening. This king of this and king of this and king of this. And then the next thing, it goes into 13, 14 years. And it says, then the king of this did this and then the other king. And you, you like trying to keep all your kings straightened out. You got nine of them that's mentioned right here. Now, when you think of a king, think it's, they're, they're like tribal kings. Okay, They're not like these kings of a nation like the queen of England or king of England or something like that. These are small little tribal kings. Now, they're powerful nations, some of them, powerful groups of people. 
but they're tribes. So you got four tribal kings, and, and, and the bad part is there's no good guys in the whole deal. Okay, there's no good guys. Abram's the only good guy that we know about in all this whole story. So there are four tribal kings. Now this Keter Lomar, Lomer guy, the king of Elam, he's kind of the ringleader of this group. He, he's the one that kind of has the allies and he pulls the people together and he is going to instigate a war. All right, he's got these other kings right here, the king of the nations or the king of the Gentiles is kind of the way the wording is. Uh, this king of Shinar, you got Arioch, the king of Elazar. Okay, and they make war against these five tribal kings. Now, the two that kind of play into our story, you got the king of Sodom and you got the king of Gomorrah, right? And then you got the king of Adam and the king of Zu and the Bella and all that kind of stuff. And by the time you get through all that, your mind just goes, <laughs> like, what in the world? Is that how it was? <laughs> all right, so now, now think about this. This is what happens, okay? And I'm just tell you the story. You can go read it if you need to. Just tell you the story, okay? You can kind of see it on, on the map here. Maybe you can see it. I got it. I don't know how well it printed out on your notes. Here, here's those four kings, all right? Let's call them, they're the really bad guys. These other guys are the bad guys, but these are the really bad guys, all right? Just kind of follow along. I'm, I'm not sure if, if I can, uh, let's, let's pull that up on that zoom in there. Uh, I'm not sure if I got a laser on this thing or not. Do I got a, nope, that's not a laser. I thought I had a laser on this thing. Yeah, it don't matter. All right. These these four kings, they they get up, and evidently this guy's the ringleader. All of these tribes pay tribute to them, okay? It was about 12 years they were all in league together, paying tribute to the, this guy, Ketalomar, or whatever his name is. They're, they're, let's call him Ked. They're paying, they're paying tribute to Ked, and, and in the 13th year, it says that these kings down here on the bottom, they said, we ain't paying you no more. You kind of got to read between the lines where they like... They rebel against him. They said, we're not paying you no more. So in the 14th year, this guy, Ked, he decides he's going to do something about it. So he comes down and he makes war with all of these tribes, the, all of these people right here. They're mentioned in the story. Okay, just to, He just comes down from the north and he just, all these places where there's fire, that he just makes war and he just pilfers these people and he takes what he wants to take. People, possessions, whatever. All right, you tracking with me now? You tracking with me? So he, he makes war right here. And come, now, here's the interesting thing. This word right here, it says the Rephaim. Does anybody know what the word Rephaim means? It's, it's, a, it's a word for giants. He makes war with the giants and defeats them. You know, where'd they come from? Well, we've run into them before already. And then we're going to run into another big ugly giant. He's going to show up in whose life? Remember David and Goliath, right? So that's, that's kind of just interesting. It's just a little sidebar. So they come down here and they, they just make war. And then they come down here to these people and they make war and they come down here to these people and they're about to go back home. And these five kings come in league together. Sodom and Gomorrah guy, the, the Bella guy, this, this Zobium guy, they all come into league together and they say, uh-uh, you ain't going to get us this time. And they make war in this valley called Sedim. They make war right there. All right, long story short, the Bible says right there, there were tar pits in that area. And it didn't turn, so, it didn't turn out so good for these guys. All right, you tracking with me? These five kings lose the battle. And they come through, and in Sodom and Gomorrah, they take everything. They take the people, they take all the possessions, and guess who else they take? 
This is, one, this is the only reason the Bible has it in, in our story. Guess who they take in this, this battle with Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot gets captured. This is where Abraham dives into the story. All right. Are you tracking with me on that? I, I know that's a lot to, to kind of deal with and, and kind of process. Are you tracking? Everybody shake your head like this or say amen or owe me or something. Amen. You tracking? All right. So that's the, that's the story that's there. So Abraham or Abram gets involved. And let's pick it up reading in verse number 11. The stories really do make sense, but sometimes you've got to study it to make it make sense. And then sometimes it's really hard still, right? <laughs> then they took all the goods, those, those, those four kings, those four bad, bad guys, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And they're going to go back up north, they're going to go back home. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, his nephew, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So they got Lot and all his kin. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth tree of Mamre. That's where we left him. The Amorite, brother of Eschol and the brother of Aner. And they were allies with Abram. So a friend comes and tells him, hey, they got Lot. What are you going to do about it? Now here's this man of faith. Look at what Abram does. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house. So what do you do if you got a what what do you do if you live in a bad neighborhood? He lives in a bad neighborhood, so he he's got 318 guys trained ready to go because when the shepherds go out, they can't just go out. This is a bad neighborhood they live in. It's rough. So they need protection. So Abram has 318 trained armed soldiers. And you think of Abraham being a nice little guy that goes to church and builds altars and loves God, but he's also packing. You understand that? <laughs> he's packing. Whatever he needs to do, he can do. This is what he does. These, all these, these servants, and even the others that were born in his house, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. In your notes, did I stop at verse 14 in your notes? Okay, so, so let's get back to, to the screen there. So they, they, they chase these guys down. and they go, So Abram, he, he lives right here in, in Hebron area. That's where he lives. So he, he gets wind of this deal. These guys have already cut out. They live up here in the north side. So Abram gets, he says, saddle up, boys. We're going. They get up and they go and they chase these guys. All the way up to Dan. You've heard the phrase in the Bible. It says from Dan to Beersheba. That's talking about from the north and the south. Dan is in the north. They chase them all the way up to Dan. Dan's one of the tribes. He's the northern tribe right here. They chase them up. And Abram's going to get a lot back. Okay. This is where our story picks up. Are you still tracking with me? Now see this. There's, a, there's an interesting character that's going to pop up right here. All right. Let's see where I'm at on my notes. Uh, let, let's, let's, let's read what he says. So Abram goes and gets all the stuff. He goes up here and gets all the stuff, and he comes back down. He's going to make a side trip to Salem. That's where he's going to meet the king. He's going to meet the king of Salem, who's Melchizedek. We'll get to him in just a moment. So he comes back down, and he comes back to Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's going to give them all the stuff back. All right, this is where we pick up our story. Let's, let's do that verse 15. Keep, keep your notes right there so you can tell me. 15 through 17 and 21 through 24. Let's... Let's go. So they, uh, Abram divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, 
which is in is north of Damascus. I kind of remember some of these words, these these towns. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and people. So Abram went and recovered all. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Ked and the kings who were with him. So Abram didn't just break bad. I mean, he defeated those four tribes that were in league together, right? Because sometimes... Even people of faith have to get down to business, you know, especially if somebody's life's at stake like that. And then verse 21, isn't that what what we said, 21? Pick it up in 21. Now look at this, and we'll talk about it. Now the king of Sodom said, when in their meeting, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, give me the people, and take the goods for yourself. What goods is he talking about now? Just so make sure you're tracking the story. He's talking about all the stuff that Abram recovered, all the spoils of war that he recovered, right? That they they had stole, right? He said, you can have all that for yourself. So that, that, that would include livestock, that would include food supplies, that would include weapons and all kinds of stuff. They ain't no telling what it include, okay? Along with people. But listen to what Abram says to the, the king of Sodom. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I made Abram rich. Except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Anor, Eschol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So, all right, now, do you really want the king of Sodom to bless you? Well, Abram says, uh, no, I do not. wonder why he didn't want anything to do with that king. Hmm. He probably wasn't good people. He probably wasn't the kind of guy you could call a friend, right? And so Abram, we, we get a little bit of glimpse into his character right there. That's, that's, all, that's really what that part's about. The king of Sodom says, you can have all this stuff. Abram says, I, I don't want nothing from you. You ever had that kind of relationship with somebody? Even trying to be nice to you, you just like, uh, uh, thanks but no thanks. You know what I'm talking about? That's what Abram says, thanks but no thanks. So, so he goes, goes on, and now he's going to meet this one that we call the King of Salem. All right, this is where our story gets interesting because this is going to show us some things about Jesus that we wouldn't know if the New Testament hadn't told us. All right, so let's pick up verse 18. 18 through 20. Let's back up a little bit. So on his way back home, Abram stops in this place called Salem. It says, Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God Most High. Okay, just pick up these details and we'll talk about it. And he blessed Abram. And he said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave Melchizedek a tithe of everything, of all. Hmm, that's kind of an interesting story, huh? What in the world is it? What's this worshiper of God doing out in the middle of nowhere? 
What in the world's going on? Let's see, who, let's see what it says right here. So we get this description of Melchizedek. And if you're able to read a little bit, where, where I ask you to read Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, you kind of get a little bit of an idea of why he becomes important. So the description given, he's the king of Salem. Okay? He's the king of Salem. Salem is the word peace. Okay? Later, Salem will be known as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You got it? All right. His name is Melchizedek. Okay? Melchi, right there, is the word for king, and Zedek is the word for righteousness. So his name literally means king of righteousness. Okay? And what was the first thing he brought out to Abram? When Abram came to him, what, what did the king go with? He said, it's so good to meet you. Hang on just a second. What did he go get? Bread and wine. Bread and wine. What in the world? Come on now. Where do we see that? Where else do we see bread and wine in the scripture? Who else brings out bread and wine? Jesus. Hey. Well, mm-hmm. Another king does that. That's very interesting. Just a little parallel if you know the New Testament. And he is also a priest of most high God, of God most high. He's a priest. Okay, now that's kind of interesting to me because all the way up to this point, I thought Abram was the only one who served God most high. But God's got his people in places we don't necessarily know sometimes. And so so Abram comes and he meets another fellow worshiper. How about that? How did he get over there? How did he find out about this God? I mean, because a lot's happened since the flood and Babel and all that kind of stuff. So God's got a, another worshiper there who's a king. That's pretty interesting. Isn't it? I can only hope the same is happening in Washington, D.C. and other places of power. That God's got his people. I hope so. He seems to have a way to do that at times. So now, what else does he do? Well, pay, pay attention here because this is going to come up real strong. He's a king and he's a priest. All right. Now the description continues and it says that he blessed Abram. And he ble- it shows the blessing that he gave. He says, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Hmm. So he blesses Abram and he also blesses God. And blessed be God most high, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, and then Abram pays tithes to this guy. <coughs> He gives him a tenth of all the stuff that, that, that he took in war. He, gave him, he, he went and paid tithes. Now you think, this is not kind of funny to me. Whose stuff, who stuff is some of this? It belongs to them pagans. And he went and put, put, he gave it to God, um, to this, this uh, king of Salem. He took all that pagan stuff that he had got and redeemed it and gave 10% of it back to God along with some of the stuff he had acquired. Okay, so paying tithes like that shows us that this man is even greater than Abraham. So he, he's he's a substantial figure in in the Bible story, right? In fact, Hebrews calls him that the the one who pays tithes pays to the greater kind of thing. So okay, all right. So now, so Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek. He gave ten percent of the spoils to this king. And how did Abram know to do this? How did Abram know to pay tithes? Was that you, Miss Pat? 
I, I thought I heard something. Now, how did Abram know to pay tithes? Because, see, I mean, you, you say, well, it's in the Bible. He didn't have a Bible. You say it was in the law. Well, the law doesn't come for like another 400 years or so. How did Abram know to pay tithes on this stuff? How did he know that? I, I, I mean, not, maybe. Maybe God taught him. Or maybe he just felt like that was the right thing to do. But this is the first mention that I know of of the idea of tithing in Scripture. And it doesn't have anything to do with the law of Moses. It doesn't have anything to do with the requirement. Abram doesn't do it because he has to do it. He does it because why? He wants to do it. So that's, that's really the heart of tithing. It kind of starts right here. And so we can say this with Abram being a man of faith, that the tithe is an act of faith. It's not, it's not just obedience to the law. It's an act of faith, according to what Abraham does. It started with him. You think about that. Now let me ask you this. Should people of faith still give 10%? Yes. And should you do it out of obligation? Or should you do it out of worship? Should you do it out of obligation or should you do it out of thanksgiving? Abram seems to do it out of thanksgiving and, and worship. He doesn't do it out of obligation. Later the law will come and tell them they have to do it. Okay. New Testament law doesn't really tell us we have to do it. It tells us we should do it. Or we should want to do it. Let's say it like that. In fact, New Testament doesn't talk much about the tithe. It talks more about this word called generosity. And you see people in the book of Acts, they don't give a tithe. They come and give everything they got. Because so, generosity, generosity acts a little bit different. You know what I'm talking about? So this is just an interesting thing. Abram paid tithes. He just knew that that was the thing he ought to do. Huh. And 2,000, 4,000 years ago at this point, this act of faith has now translated down to all the people of faith. And I've often wondered, what if everybody who names the name of Jesus, what if they gave 10% of what, they just acted like Abraham, like Father Abraham. Wonder what would happen. What would happen to the church overnight? It'd be, yeah. And what would happen to the blessing of God over people's lives? Now, we don't give to be blessed, but it's a, it's a great side effect. You know what I'm talking about? He said he'd open up the windows of heaven, didn't he? And pour out a blessing we couldn't even receive. Now, I, I don't know about that. That sounds like a pretty good blessing, don't <laughs> So Abram pays tithes to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek, what makes him unique? It's this idea that he is a king and a priest. Okay, now we've got to get into a little bit of theology here. <coughs> Normally, a king and a priest are two different people. Okay? So you have a king who rules the nation, and you have a priest who who deals with all the rites and rituals of, of a particular religion. I mean, the pagans even have priests. But God had his own priest too. So usually they're, they're, they're two separate individuals, but in Melchizedek, the roles or the offices are wrapped into this one man. One man. Now, there's been lots of speculation and lots of mystery around Melchizedek. I'm not going to get into a lot of that. Some people say it was like a Christophany, that like this is a sighting of, of Jesus in the Old Testament. That's a possibility. I, I don't go that route myself. I, I think he's an actual king. I think he's an actual man. And I think he's a type of Messiah. I think he, it, it points us to what Messiah is going to be like. Okay? Some people even speculate that he's an angel. Uh, I, I don't go that route either. Okay? He's a type. You know what a type is? It's, it's like some, somebody that, that models or like is a template of something. 
that is to come. Melchizedek becomes the template of what Messiah is going to be like. We're going to make sense of that in just a moment. So here's where it gets interesting. David writes in Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110, you, you ought to know about Psalm 110. Now, you need to go read that and reread it. It is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's the, the phrases throughout Psalm 110 are scattered throughout the, the New Testament. It's a psalm of David. David wrote it. It's called a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that points us and, and, and shows us or paints a portrait of Messiah. Okay? This is what verse number 4 of Psalm 110 says. Okay, this is King David writing. So, so that we fast forward a few hundred years into King David's life. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You, talking about Messiah, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay. Now, what, what is an order? What is an order? Well, if, if we were Catholic, we would know a little bit more about priestly orders. What do they have? Like the, the Jesuit order, and then they got the order of this particular person or saint or this, the order of this and that and the other. An order is like a priesthood. Does that make sense to you? So what is the order of Melchizedek? So we got, we got a priesthood in, in the Old Testament that comes a little bit later in the law of Moses called the Levitical priesthood, right? And it's known as the order of Aaron. Now, who was Aaron? Remember Aaron? As Moses' brother. And he was the first high priest of Israel, right? Underneath the law of Moses. He was the first high priest. All right, so now you've got that order of Aaron. Now, this is what's talking about the order of Melchizedek. And it goes back to this king-priest kind of combination. See, in Aaron's day, the order of Aaron, that's just a bunch of priests. Some of them were priests that served in the temple and tabernacle. Some of them were priests that served on the grounds and did all kinds of other things. Some of them served, uh, made sacrifices. Some of them took up the money. Some of them took up the, the deal. Some of them raised the sacrifices. Some of them packed up the tent when it was time to move it. All that kind of thing. That was all in the order of Aaron. Now, the order of Melchizedek goes back to this king-priest combination. Okay? That the Messiah, when he comes, David says it in Psalm 110, when Messiah comes, he will be a king and a priest. Okay? Well, now what is that? Okay, what is a king and a priest? What, what do they do? Well, let's go, go to Hebrews 6, and let's see what Hebrews 6 says. Hebrews 6.20. Y'all keep your notes right there, and uh, let me know my, my passages, will you? Hebrews 6.20. Let's pull that up. Melchizedek comes into the new covenant. Let's pull that up. Hebrews 6.20. It's the last verse of chapter 6. Where the forerunner has entered for us, talking about Jesus, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay. Mm. So this is why that story is in the Old Testament. It, it gives us an idea of what's happening here. Go into chapter, chapter 7. What verses do I want in chapter 7? 1 through 6? Yeah. 1 through 6. Listen to this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. Okay, that's our story, what we just read. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated, he was the king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. He was without father, without mother. That's where the mystery kind of comes in. What's, what's he talking about? He was without father. He's without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, 
but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest continually, the Son of God. Now, what in the world does it mean? He had no father, he had no mother, there's no genealogy. Well, how did the scripture present him to us? Here he is. Did it say anything about where he came from? Did it say anything about who he came from? And the writer of Hebrews is saying the mystery that surrounds this man is to show us that he's a type of Christ. Because Christ is literally, I mean, Jesus had a beginning, but the Son of God had no beginning. And he has no ending. The Son of God, God himself, the person of God, he has no mother, he has no father, he just is. How long has God been around? Forever. <laughs> and somebody said forever. That's a mighty long time, right? So the way the story portrays it, the Hebrews writer picks up on the mystery and says, we don't know anything about this guy. He disappeared on the scene. All right. Now verse 4. Now consider how great this man was. Talking about Melchizedek. Consider how great he was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brothers, though they have come from the loins of Abram. But he chose, he, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. All right, what's the next verse I want? 14 to 17. 14 to 17. All right, there's a lot of stuff in between, but talking about the tithe. For it's evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Okay, so now what's Judah? Who's from Judah? Jesus. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Who else is from the tribe of Judah? What famous king do we know is from the tribe of Judah? David. Ah, David. So he's from the tribe of Judah, which ties him to the kingship. Okay, be from the order of Melchizedek, which ties him to the priesthood, and it is yet far from. It is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest, who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, "You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek." Now that's Psalm one ten. We just read that, right? For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, so it, it, it passes away. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. What's my next group of verses? That was all we had, just those three, that three groupings. All right, so go, go back to our notes now. Are, are you totally lost? Are you totally confused? Now let's, let's go back to this idea of Jesus, both king and priest, okay? So now what does a king do? What does a king do? Melchizedek's the king. He, Jesus is of the order. He's, he's going to be like Melchizedek. He's going to be a king and a priest. So a king, this is just some things I just sit down and thought about. The, a king, he's an example to the people. He exercises, he is supposed to exercise godly authority. So he's not to abuse his authority. He's not to, you know, use it to, to keep people oppressed. He is to be a godly authority. Moses lays out all kinds of laws for the king. You know, in Moses' day, Moses said this is what the king is to do. The king is to take the, the Torah and he is to make himself his own personal handwritten copy of God's word. 
Now imagine if we did that with our leaders. Said, hey, I know you're getting sworn in today to be the President of the United States, and the, your first order of business is to set yourself some time over the next month, and you are to t- do nothing over the next month but to sit there, and I want you to make your own handwritten copy of the Bible. How about that? Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> a king is to be a leader, he's a shepherd of the people. He's to be protector, defender, right? That's what the king's job is, is to keep the borders secure, to keep things, the enemy off, right? He's to be a provider. He's to make sure the economy operates properly. He's to make sure everything is, is provided and freedom's provided so the people can do commerce and trade with one another. He's a provider. And the king is to love the people and give his life to serve them. Now, does that sound like Jesus? Does all that sound like Jesus? We, we could pull story or teaching after teaching out of the Gospels and show how Jesus modeled this kingship. He's a king. Okay? But Jesus is not just the king. I mean, he's the king of kings and, king and the Lord of lords. He, but he's not just a king. He's also a priest. So what is a priest? A priest is a mediator, right? Or an intercessor. What, what's a mediator? Well, you, you may have some legal problems and you had to go to a mediator. What did that person try to do? He, he worked something out for people that are at odds with one another. So there's, there's a, Jesus is the mediator. In fact, the scripture says he is the only mediator between God and man. Okay. And how does he mediate? Okay. He mediates in two different ways. The priest represents God to the people. Okay. So when this priest goes, you know, we got a picture of it in the Old Testament. The high priest would go and he would have all these garments on. You've seen the kids' plays and the things like that where they have the, the, the high priest, he's dressed up. And what does he have on his, his breast? He's got what's called the breastplate. And what is on the breastplate? All of these stones. How many of them? Twelve. Why twelve? Twelve, one for each tribe of Israel to let them, to, he is walking around in his God costume, if I can say it like that, not to be sacrilegious, but he's walking around in his God costume to show the people that they are always on the heart of God. And he's walking around, he's representing God to the people. Okay, That's a priest's role. But it also reverses for the priest that he is to go and represent the people before God. So that's the time of sacrifice and the time of prayer and the altar of incense and all that where he goes on behalf of the people and mediates with God, right? That's the whole idea of, the, of, of uh, sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins and all that kind of thing. He goes on behalf of the people and says, God, here's Emily's sacrifice. This is, this is for Emily and Chris and their family. And he gives it to them, Right? So he represents God to the people, and the priest also represents the people to God. Hmm. Does that sound like Jesus? What did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen God if you've seen me. And then when Jesus comes before the people, he is going to represent the people before God, and he is going to be the, 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 the human who stands in between us and God to mediate this relationship. You see what I'm talking about? So the priest offers sacrifices. Now here's the interesting thing about Jesus that makes him unique from all others. And if you read Hebrews 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, or excuse me, 7, 8, 9, and 10, if you read Hebrews, 
you will find out that Jesus was not only the priest or the high priest, he was also the sacrifice. That's the unique thing about him. Okay, so now this is where Melchizedek comes in. You just read these little stories, and, 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 and if you've got a good study Bible, it'll start making these connections with you because the apostles made these connections. Why is Melchizedek even in our Bible? Why is that story even in there about Abraham going to him and paying tithes? Well, Jesus becomes a king like Melchizedek. He is both king and priest. Now listen to this. In John eight fifty six, Jesus is having this, this wild discussion. I mean, it gets a little heated. And Jesus is wrapping up the conversation and he says this to all these religious leaders. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Okay. When did Abraham see the king, priest, Messiah that's to come? When did he see him? Well, he saw some things that happened with Isaac later on in the story. We'll get to chapter 22 and there'll be some things happening. And Abraham saw something right there for sure. But I think he saw something over here in Salem too. Hmm. It's just a thought. Now listen to what Peter says. What's all this king priest stuff have to do with me? Well, it's got everything to do with our faith. It's got everything to do with our Savior. That he is a king and a priest for us. And we worship him as such. Well, he's king, priest, and sacrifice. But look at how this spreads out because Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek and Jesus actually starts his own priesthood. Guess who's a part of that priesthood? All believers. Listen to what Peter says. Speaking of all believers, both Jew and Gentile, he says, you are a chosen generation. That sounds like Abraham. And you are a royal priesthood. A holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You get that? So he's talking about us now. So Jesus starts as our great high priest. He is both king and priest over us. But guess what he wants out of our lives? He wants us to become a royal priesthood. You see the royal right there? That's the kingly part, right? And I had time to get into it. And I, I may have lost you on some of this because it, it gets kind of deep theology, especially when you get into the book of Hebrews. <laughs> it takes a little while to unpack it. But we are to be kings and priests. Guess what we're going to be doing for all of eternity? You read the book of Revelation. If I had time, I'd lay it out before you. You get it in chapter 1. You get it in chapter 5. It says it over and over. And it says it over in the, the latter part of the chapter that we are going to rule and reign with Christ forever. And that he is making us kings and priests. You go read it yourself. Revelation 1 and chapter 5. Go find it. He is making us both kings and priests unto our God. See what I'm talking about? So there's more to you than you think. God wants more out of you. He wants us to become this royal priesthood. And Jesus is our king priest. And he'll enable us to do it. Okay? So your mind is blown, slammed apart, ain't it? Okay? Questions, comments before we go? Sometimes we just got to let the story kind of just tell itself and just kind of, if we get confused, we'll catch up. We'll catch up. If we're going to be all kings and priests in heaven, who's going to be the king? 
Who's, who's going to be that? <laughs> well, the Bible does talk about, um, it talks about perpetual generations. Mm-hmm. That God's going to continue the human race. He's going to redeem and continue the human race. The idea that he set forth in Eden is going to happen. And we're going to be a part of God's divine counsel, so to speak. And we're going to rule and reign with him. And the earth is going to flourish. And we're going to live in the new Jerusalem. And the earth and everybody else and all the planets, they're going to be occupied by humans. God's going to have his way that he intended in the first place. That's the way the Bible lays out. Now, some folks have never heard that kind of stuff. And they think it sounds like Mormonism or something like that. But that's, they, got, they got it all screwed up. It's different on their end. But we're going to rule and reign the way we were intended. Exactly. And that's, this is where we begin to live out the calling that he's got over our lives to be more like Christ or to be like him. So, you hear what I'm talking about? Well, where did Bill Shepherd that come from? Was he spiritually born? The Hebrews writer kind of says that because there's no mystery. We, we have no, no doubt on it. We have no no biblical record on it. And he just came out and did Abraham. He just came out and he was there. Where did he come from? Well, that's the mystery over his life. We don't know. And the Hebrews writer says, what do you think? Well, I think he was just a man like us that well, served God. Now these kings in the north that came down, they, why didn't they bother him? He was over here. Yeah. Well, Maybe God's protection over him. But he might have been packing too, so you don't know. So you think he did have a mother and a father, he was just like me and you, I think he was a he was a righteous king. You you know how the how the now this is my opinion, there's other people that differ from me on that, I'll just be honest with you on that deal. But the way the story lays it out is there's the king of this, the king of this, the king of this, and the king of this, and the king of this, and who are they? I mean they're like people, right? And then it says the king of Salem. And he's another king in that area who's a righteous king who does who who has set up his kingdom in a right kind of way. I mean, his name means the king of right. I said righteousness, but it literally means the king of right. That's where you want to live. You want to live where the king of right is in charge, because when when you live underneath the king of wrong, everything goes wrong, right? So I think I think the Hebrews writer picks up on the way the story's framed, and he said, you know, where where did Melchizedek come from? Well, we'd have no mention of father. We had no mention of mother. We don't know anything about him. And there's a mystery over him. And the Bible doesn't answer that mystery either. Although Paul says things like this when he's talking about it. He said, there's a lot more stuff I'd like to tell you about this stuff, but you can't handle it. <laughs> I mean, he says that kind of stuff, right? Now, I don't have the revelation. I can't be smart like that with you because I don't know the revelation. But... You are out Hebrew? Possibly. It's very possible. It's very possible it was another another writer though too. So we don't know. There's no author given. Whoever it was, whoever wrote Hebrews, knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. You have given such visions and revelations though that more likely would have been him. It, it very possibly could have been him. Now, if I'm picking and I got to pick, I would say yeah, it was Paul. But we we don't we just don't know. We don't know, but whoever it was knew the Old Testament. A lot of good preachers, probably 
It's very possible. It's very possible. So, well, whoever wrote it knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards because they tied Jesus into all the Old Testament and say he is. He, this is who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. He knew his stuff. Paul knew his stuff. Paul knew his stuff. Somebody, somebody did an equivalency one time as far as like modern education versus what Paul had. Paul was a, a very well educated man. That he would have had like the equivalent of like four to five PhDs is what his education level would have been. He's a, this is a brilliant man. So, but there's a lot of mystery involved with Melchizedek. The, the main mystery is that he is tied to Christ. He's tied. Christ is a king like Melchizedek. Christ is a priest like Melchizedek. He's a king and a priest. So when you worship and when you pray, guess who you're talking to? talking to this king priest who is the king of kings and lord of lords and who is our high priest who's our great it doesn't just say high priest in hebrews it says he who is our great high priest who has made intercession for us that's who we worship and all that ties into this abraham story